0: Welcome to DevMode.fm, a podcast dedicated to the tools, techniques, and technologies used in modern web development. I'm Andrew Welch from NY Studio 107.
1: And I'm Ryan Ireland from CraftQuest.io.
0: And Ryan and I are on here doing another stand-up. If you're hearing this, it's going to be a little bit after Christmas, but before New Year. so we wanted to get everyone kind of in the in the festive spirit with a little bit of Christmas music. And we did not want to have Ryan singing it. <laughs> So. <laughs> uh, not after all the eggnog i've been
1: drinking over christmas andrew
0: well listen i want to start this off with what i did the last stand-up which is an etymology and ryan is one of these guys that he, he professes to be incredibly literate incredibly well read <laughs> oh, but, but yet when i gave him a couple of words <laughs> from my book that i was reading heart of darkness he, he didn't know any of them okay so let, let's just frame this but ryan the word sanguine do you know what sanguine means so if I said to you I was sanguine about coming down to visit you or et, et cetera, et cetera,
1: what, what would that mean? Uh, I believe it means maybe... Don't you look it up. I see I'm, not, I'm hands. Not, I'm not. In. I'm okay. just looking at a book. It's okay. just not that. All right. I believe it means contemplative or not melancholy. So it means exactly the opposite. Oh. It means... <laughs>
0: <laughs> it doesn't
1: sound like that, though.
0: Yeah, it means confidently, optimistic, or cheerful. Gosh. And this is a word that has always interested me, actually, because I actually remember back in the, I think it was maybe like 10th grade or something, English class, and the teacher was talking about the history of the word sanguine and mm-hmm. where it comes from. I found it really interesting because the word itself comes from the Latin root, which means blood. Literally, the Latin root of this, sanguineous, means oh, interesting. of blood. Yeah. So you might say, well, that's crazy. How does that end up meaning cheerful or hopeful (laughs) or optimistic when it's literally about blood? Mm. And the story is that back in the day when they didn't really know what was going on in terms of healthcare, one of the things that they would do to try and make people feel better was bloodletting. So they would have leeches and they would use those to get the blood out of people because they thought it was one of the four humors. And if you had too much of it, that it could make you sick. Mm. So the word sanguine, which comes from blood, Blood has been associated with confidently optimistic or cheerful because the idea was if you drain people's blood, it will make them feel better because they have some kind of an issue.
1: Interesting. But definitely make them lightheaded <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it probably makes them a little delusional. Yeah, But that's my etymology. It's nothing, uh, it's not necessarily a phrase, but it's a word that I find the root is kind of surprising because it means yeah. blood, but yet it's cheerful and
1: optimistic. And I just think it's kind of an interesting Not history. only the root, but the sound of it does mm. not sound cheerful. I know that sounds yeah. weird, but I'm very like, that's how I identify things.
0: There are some words that are kind of like that. I'm always kind of ambivalent about ambivalent. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm always kind of yeah. never really sure what's going on there. Yeah. Anyway, let, well, let's... Well, I'm uh,
1: sanguine about our us recording this podcast. Are you going anywhere with it? No, that was that? it. I was just trying to use it in so a sentence. So it's
0: like the, a seventh grade level usage. Okay, yeah, I well, I mean,
1: of- it is a podcast. I think most things that people talk about on podcasts are seventh grade level.
0: So Ryan, I want to talk about Docker Compose. Oh, we gosh. did a little segment on it, the, the Docker Compose API, and real quick, for anyone, I'm going to recap it real quick. They basically, they used one way of naming their containers, and then they switched it to another way, and then they switched it back with mm-hmm. a, behind a feature flag. And now we woke up one day and it was wrong again. And it, they rolled it all the way back to underscores, which is what it was in the beginning. Whether you choose the Docker Compose to API or not, I'm, I'm bringing it up just because like, this is getting ridiculous, right? Like it's really
1: ridiculous. So the Docker project, this isn't, so this is Docker Compose, which is a component of the overall Docker thing. Right? Yeah. Is that is that a community maintained project or is that actually underwritten by a corporate entity? I believe that a company
0: was formed around it. I don't know. Honestly, I don't know the origins of Docker. I should have looked that up and checked it out. My guess is it started as an open source project and then mm-hmm. they formed a company around it. I know that they were trying for some time to make money on it using various avenues. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure that it's a company that is maintaining it, the but reason I, I, I don't know anything is beyond
1: Typically, I guess it doesn't matter if there's a company behind it or not because it is such a large and widely used project that I'm surprised that there's this type of nonchalantness about how things are released and removed and added. Yeah, uh, it is a little bit
0: loose and free. Let's let's put it that way.
1: Anyway, that's all sorted out. I'm just done with it
0: at this point, Ryan. So there are two things. That, one or two things. So first of all, I rolled it back so it's just underscores everywhere. Made all those changes. There is also a way in your Docker Compose file that you can specify the name of a container it's this is one of those things if they change it one more time right one more time <laughs> they mess with me like this i'm just going to specify the name of the container in the docker compose file and never have to deal with it again
1: so so the problem that we ran into with your make file is that at the at least that i ran into is at the top of the make file you have a a variable that you set that is the name of the container. I think is that right? You remember? Yep. And you were assuming underscores. Now, couldn't you just change that regex just to handle both cases, or not necessarily?
0: It's not a regular expression. Well, it's not, I you don't mean check against number, I mean. both. Yeah, I mean in theory I could check it against both, but at the rate that this is going. <laughs> They're going to change it alphabet. to like bullet bullet points or something <laughs> like that. Like who knows what they're gonna what they're gonna end up doing and changing yeah. to. And the reason why I left it like that is that it if you don't specify anything, it will use the current directory of the project as the the root name of the Docker stuff is, and then it will use the name of the service that you specify in the actual Docker compose file, and then it will automatically append a one. And yeah, mm-hmm. I could manually name all all of these things, but then I would be putting a lot of redundant stuff into the Docker Compose files. I kind of like that it just picks up the name based on the location of where the thing is so i was i'm kind of reluctant to name them but i'm just i'm done with it if they change it again i'm done with it
1: and i I get your situation too because you created a tool and offered it out to other people and it needs to be as flexible and generic as possible for everyone yeah
0: i I don't want to spend too much time on this it's just it's it's almost comedy because of
1: the fact that it's going back again
0: but we're back to underscores and let's just assume we're staying here ryan
1: Let's hope that we're staying here. I hope so. I mean, I had a complete failure of Docker on my iMac yesterday, so I don't. <laughs> so I'm. It was the least of my worries yesterday. Yeah, but, but you were on
0: drugs and you were high as a kite and probably doing some really <laughs> not wonderful things. So, and
1: actually, how did this happen? You were stamping out a, a fire ant colony or something, and and they attacked I was at, you, or so this this is. Um, we're recording on a Friday, and this would have been last Saturday. So, so six days ago, I was with my daughter at the softball fields where her softball league plays. And this is, it's off-season right now. So we were just there for some off-season practice. just to- And you wanted to teach her how to stomp on innocent little creatures <laughs> well, that are not harming anybody
0: I, and, and how to use your, your power to oppress the masses is what, no, you, what you did. Um,
1: I inadvertently stepped into a small pile of fire ants. And I don't know if you have fire ants up there. They are, Andrew. or we do. You, okay. And the people who don't know what they are, I know Europe doesn't have anything, any insects that hurt you. So for people that are from Europe, the fire ants are these little red ants that bite you and they will bite you multiple times. They actually will latch on and then kind of spin around on you and it hurts and they can be... Some people can have anaphylactic reaction, like an actual truly life-threatening reaction, the same way you would if you were allergic to a yellow jacket sting or a bee sting.
0: Yeah, I don't know the exact definition, Ryan. Unlike most people on Facebook, I am not a doctor, so I'm not (laughs) dispensing medical advice.
1: Anyway, but they do, they typically just give you a burning feeling and it's typically like on your legs, right? Or your feet or somewhere. And they're super aggressive. You typically get these little red welts and that's kind of it. And that's in the past, that's what I've had. We have them all over here in Texas. If the softball fields haven't been used, in almost a month because the season is over, that basically anything that goes unused here, the ants will just take over if it's not maintained. I've never had a problem with fire ant bites. I've been bitten before. And this time I didn't have a serious reaction that was life-threatening. I had a reaction that was delayed, but caused on my right, I just got it on my right ankle, but caused my right ankle, lower leg and foot to swell up. And I didn't notice it until the next morning I had gone on typical Sunday morning run. And I didn't notice afterwards until someone pointed it out that my ankle was all swollen. And I started feeling like, really bad. Like I had, I don't know what to, how to explain it, but I felt like I was experiencing something not normal in my body. I took Benadryl, which you're supposed to take as an antihistamine. Of course, that made me feel worse because Benadryl completely knocks you out. Does it though? It does for me. I'm starting to find out this week that I'm basically sensitive to all the things. Um, yeah, it sounds
0: like the ants were just like, oh, this guy is an easy target. He's yeah. Let me get this just, runner just, vegan guy <laughs> and we're going to bite him. We'll just take him down.
1: <laughs> So you then, had, you then, had cankles
0: then I, like a overweight pregnant woman, right? You had these big old cankles going on.
1: Yeah, well, I had one, and I did go. I did like a virtual urgent care visit on Monday. They gave me prescribed me prednisone, which is a steroid. And then I went to my actual doctor on Wednesday. And no one really knows that this is can just happen to people. Your reaction to certain toxins like that from insects can elevate. It could be that it's worse next time. It could be that it's the same. So are you a spiteful person, Ryan? Are you now? Do you have a vendetta against? Fire ants? Are you going mean, to go out? I mean, if I have fire ants on my gasoline on, down there in their my house, nests? in my yard, I will absolutely pour boiling water on them. Oh my um, goodness. You will burn them alive? Yeah, no, they're not like what good do they do they bring to the world? Wow. So, I had it so the problem that I had Andrew was that I had took these steroids and I am not I was not equipped for the side effects of steroids uh, of prednisone. And there's all sorts of different types of steroids, but of prednisone. It makes me, you know, excitability and inability to sleep. Those are all side effects of it. And my whole life I've always been very sensitive to all sorts of different things like sugar and caffeine and when I was younger it was always artificial dyes and stuff they put in food all that stuff that can cause excitability well I've just been this week I've I feel like I've been shaking inside my skin the entire week mm. but it's at the same time I'm also really tired so it's this weird you've ever had like been over caffeinated but tired it's kind of like that it sounds like every day in my
2: life right
1: <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, it hasn't been the most productive week. I was planning to actually do some coding. We were laughing earlier before we started recording that I abandoned that quickly because focus just hasn't been there.
0: Yeah, everybody, I get these texts from Ryan. He's just like, <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm flying because I'm on these <laughs> steroids and I, I took this and I'm all messed up. And then I'm just like, oh, okay, that's nice, Ryan. And then I'll get a text from him a little while later. I think I'm going to refactor all of the code on my project into Vue. And I'm like... <laughs> Are you sure it's a good idea right now? I mean, your, not last, a good idea. Y- your last text was basically just telling me, that, I'm
1: tripping, dude, you know? Yesterday was bad. I did not <laughs> feel well. Anyway, that's the deal is it was surprising. It was a little scary just to see your a body part kind of just get all swollen and you just have no idea what you're going. on. I'm otherwise have really don't have any major medical problems. So it's kind of freaked me out. Ryan, I'm an advocate for the European wasp,
0: which is very angry that you said that no insect in Europe, will hurt you in any way. And the European wasp is pretty upset with you making that kind of broad
1: statement. <laughs> I don't think Europe has any dangerous animals or insects. There's no threats there. Are you there. kidding me? No. What do they have? They have bears. Where? Where do they have bears? There's some bears in the some of the
0: forests in Germany. And also in, in Eastern Europe there are.
1: Okay. Oh, maybe.
0: I don't think there's and the, bears And in there the definitely Alps, are stinging insects. Like, you're, you've you lost your mind. Yeah, but not like...
1: I mean, normal stuff like a bee, but not like... I don't know.
0: Maybe I have this. Which would you rather be stung by, fire ant or a European wasp? I don't know what a European wasp is. It's a wasp. Did you wasp. send me a link? You know what a wasp is? Yeah, I don't like wasps. This is just a wasp that lives in Europe. It uh, would hurt <laughs> way more to get stung by a European... Or, or bit by a yeah. European wasp than a fire
1: ant, man. I don't want to be... St- I, I think wasps are equally as... They have zero value. I don't like wow. they, they steal honey. They're basically little thieves. They're like the script kitties of uh of the <laughs> the, the flying insect world. All right, we they got Thanos so Thanos over here deciding what animals have value and what <laughs> don't. All right, I got it. Anyway, but enough about insects. Andrew, do you run anything on AWS? I do. I have some clients that run
0: services on AWS and I use Amazon S3 and you know AWS is this huge collection of services. So for some projects, I'm all AWS. For others, just
1: using pieces. And for some others, not at all. So in the first week of December, I think it was on December 6th, there was a major outage of AWS and it was one of their regions. So AWS is broken up into regions. There's US East 1, US East 2, US West blah, 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 so so forth, and then across the world. And a region can be multiple data centers as well. But anyway, US East 1 was down, and it brought down a lot of sites. I know the email tool that I use, Drip, was down for almost basically the entire day. Mm. A lot of places were down, didn't have any access, and it wasn't all the services. I think it was EC2. I don't think S3 was affected. There were some other services as well, but I know API Gateway was down, some of the SSO service, uh, AWS Connect. But it was a once in five year type of outage. You don't really see this very much. But the funny yeah. thing is, is that a friend of mine who is a AWS DevOps engineer, not, not working there, but that's what he does. He certified in that. And he does it for another company. He kind of had a smile because I think there's kind of an unwritten rule of or at least maybe it's just him of not putting anything in US East 1 because it is the oldest, I believe, of the regions. And it's the one that seems to always have the most problems. It's where even I've had problems. When I started setting things up, he's like, don't put your productions Stuff in US East One, put it West or somewhere else because US East One is just a complete nightmare. Really? Yeah. Like they kind of. I mean, I, I realize it's an older, but whatever. Why? Why does that matter? It's just a. Don't think uh, just. And I don't to It's data like centers? a tale, you know. That isn't that isn't true. Or if there are some of the underlying tech, you know, it's not the, obviously the servers themselves because those things are swapped out like crackers. I mean, they just kind of just push those things in and out over and over. Um, the,
0: the old verbiage used to be wives' tale. I think let's let's update I don't it. Think we can call use these, that anymore. Call yeah. these nerd nerd. Nerd tales. Right? Nerd so tales. I think, that's probably better. I think this better. is a nerd tale yeah. in terms of, you know, it's a superstition. Like, I, it's just it, it, it's it's Yeah, maybe. Funny.
1: But I thought it was funny. But also what was even more interesting to me is that something like Drip had zero multi-region or multi-availability zone redundancy, which I'm is... I'm actually
0: going to... Th- Throw shade on your insult. Yeah, I agree with you that they should have some kind of redundancy. Yeah. If they are a large service like that. But the reality is most of them don't. Right. And the reality is even the larger ones that do, <laughs> once something fails, they figure out, oh, that didn't exactly <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that didn't exactly work the way it was supposed to in terms of redundancy. But I'm going to throw shade on your attacking the U.S. East zone for. Mm-hmm. I have a screenshot of when stuff was down yesterday. Mm-hmm. Amazon Connect was down, Amazon DynamoDB, Amazon Elastic Compute Cloud. Mm -hmm. All three of those were not in U.S. East. They were in North Virginia.
1: That is U.S. East 1. In North Virginia is U.S. East 1? I believe so, yeah. I don't know. It's specifying right here. I'm looking at the screenshot. Well, so that's the... now I have to remember the terminology. I used to know all this. So an availability zone in AWS, there's regions and zones. Yep. So a region is North Virginia is U.S. East 1. and then
0: No, but it's got to be more than that because I know that they have data centers uh, in, you know, well, Ohio wouldn't count, but up in, in New York and some other places like that. that. Is they- U.S. East 1 a collection of a number of different data centers, one of which is North Virginia, or what is the hierarchy?
1: Let's see. I don't remember. I used to have to know that. So I just see listed here as U.S. East 1 is U.S. East North Virginia. U.S. Uh. East 2 is U.S. East Ohio. Uh. All right. All right. I, know, I guess I can't we, throw shade at you then. Uh, see? Anyway, but typically what you do on a, a service where you need to have some sort of uptime agreement or SLA is that you would have things out on, in multiple availability zones in multiple regions throughout, if you're on AWS, throughout AWS, and that's built into their architecture. Right? You can architect things to do that, both in, if you're using something like RDS for the database, um, you can just, there's like one checkbox that says make this RDS instance multi-AZ, and then basically it gets replicated across some multiple servers in different availability zones. The fun thing
0: is, though, Ryan, I almost always see it, that people will set up redundant systems, mm-hmm. and then something will fail and it will be a piece of the system that is just it, they didn't expect that it would fail in this way like a, a root DNS outage or something like that and yeah, no, it no, really totally. makes it difficult to, to do Dry runs to test for actual failure, to use like a, a chaos monkey kind of tool. I guess you have to just assume everything is gonna be killed and see what survives, you know?
1: Yeah. So anyway, I thought it was interesting. It doesn't happen that often. A lot of people were impacted. And I know that in terms of drip, they're in the mark email marketing business. They had all of their customers for almost an entire work day couldn't send any emails, which in this time of year yeah. <laughs> is a pretty big deal. Yeah. This is when everyone spams me
0: with all the emails I don't want to
1: get. You don't have to call my email spam. I'm Andrew you you opted in at some point I'm sure I did not opt in <laughs> So if anybody got affected by that my site craft I run on served served is built on top of digital ocean architecture so I wasn't impacted on this but I used to be and I used to have tons of yeah. uh, client sites on AWS before I migrated them actually all over to served So yeah it would have been a bad day for me but uh, if if that had happened but it, a lot of people had a bad day and so it's just AWS if AWS has an outage there's not a lot that the engineers can do, right? Yeah. The DevOps engineers are right. just like, well, we can't fix this. This is an AWS yeah. thing. And so it's, it's a little frustrating. It's almost better if you can dig in and try to root out the problem and, and fix it.
0: It's kind of funny. If you flash back 30 years, you would get either a day off of school or a day off of work. And if you're if you're under 30, I, I don't even want to hear from you because you're just annoying <laughs> me. You're just annoying me at this moment. But if it was a really bad weather, you know, like a snow day, right? you'd be like, oh, it's a snow day. We don't have to work. These days, if you're a knowledge worker or a programmer of any kind, when GitHub is down, you're just like, okay, I guess we have the day off, you know, because <laughs> I mean, it, literally yeah, so many things depend on GitHub functioning. Yeah that when it's down, you're just like, well, you know, I guess I'll take the day off. I mean, there there is some work you can kind of do on your own, but inevitably you're tied into that system in ways that you didn't even think you were.
1: Right, which is kind of funny because the original idea behind Git was as a decentralized version control system. Yeah, And and it's all been built back to, with the workflows of being more actually more centralized. I mean, you can still work in Git and commit things, but you're not able to collaborate with anybody unless you export Git patches and email them to someone and say, here's my here's my work I've been doing. And they can't Well, so I've actually patch. done it. So I, I yeah.
0: run my own Git server and I have private repos that are up there. Mm-hmm. And I can pull down from GitHub and then I can push up to one of the private repos. So in, in theory, that could be used uh, in the interim. But you're right. I mean, the vast majority of people don't do something like that. And that's just the way the whole internet has gone, though. I mean, right. the whole internet was originally decentralized in nature and it's really not anymore. And the reason is because of convenience
1: convenience convenience and cost effectiveness. I mean, Mm -hmm. those
0: are the two reasons. And it's the same thing with Git.
1: Yeah. And with everybody working, not everybody, but so many people working remotely, these types of tools and workflows that has been core to what we do. And I thought about it. What happens if Microsoft
0: is like, ah, you know, this loss leader, we're going to have to charge $5 a month for the accounts that were free. Pretty much everyone is just going to be like, ah, this sucks, but we'll pay five bucks a month. You know
1: what I mean? Because what are you going to do? What are you going to do? GitHub is a great I remember when it was very basic. It's a pretty amazing tool. They've done a really nice job. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're recovering from your
0: fire ant stuff. I still don't think that you should do a whole lot of coding, Ryan. (laughs) Um, But one of the things that I wanted to mention to you is that I have rejoined the ranks of people that are doing client work. So I've always done a little bit, Mm -hmm. but I signed on to do 10 hours a week of client work for a particular company. And it's been interesting so far. I've been enjoying it. Some of the challenges that have come along, I've are ones that on my own, I probably never would have seen and tried to implement. And I'm working with some really good people, so they're allowing me to do things right. You know, they're not on my back, do this as quickly as possible so we can close the tickets to move it on the sprint so that we can have you know, yeah. that's not happening. And I'm actually being given the time to do stuff right, which I'm I'm enjoying doing. I mean, I, I think it's uh it's kind of fun. I don't know that I would want to do a whole lot more than the ten hour a week commitment. I guess it depends. Depends so, on the project. Yeah,
1: I think that's the best approach is if it's not the main part of your income or where your interest is, is to do it like on a project by project basis, what's interesting to you. That's how I work. As I've also, I spent the first nine months of the year not really doing any client work. I had one return small retainer client. And now I've actually picked back up in the fall. The fall always gets busier. People have more things that they want to do once the summer's over here on the Northern Hemisphere. And so I actually have picked up a little bit, but it's been interesting for me because it gives me the opportunity to create things that aren't of my own ideas. And and I think that's fun.
0: One of the deals in signing on with these people, I said, all right, pending your approval, but I would like the ability to potentially write articles about some of the stuff that we're working on. They're like, yeah, we're totally cool with that. We're totally down with that. And I said, you know, I'll show them to you too first and they're not going to have any of your information or anything like that in there. And the one of the first articles that has resulted from this was I wrote an article on searching craft CMS matrix blocks.
1: Oh, that's where that came from.
0: Okay, cool. Which basically a a problem that needed to be solved was they were putting a bunch of information in matrix blocks. Then they needed to be able to find entries that had fields that match certain values in a matrix block in the entry. Mm -hmm. And so I came up with a behavior that makes it easy for you to do that. It's a, called a, a matrix criteria behavior. And you can just add that to your the criteria when you do a search. So you can, let's say that you're trying to find in, in the section Sundays, you've got a Sunday builder Matrix block. You can just do craft.entries.section.sundays, and then you can add .matrix criteria, and you pass in the name of the field, which is Sunday Builder, the name of the matrix field, and then in a object syntax, you can pass in the field and then the matching value that you want to find in there. Hmm. So, for instance, I want to find all of the matrix blocks of the type scoop and of the flavor chocolate. And those will be blocks that are in the Sunday builder matrix block in the Sunday's entry in the Sunday's section. So essentially the more data that we put in the matrix block, the more we need something like this that is gonna let us search for data that is in inside of that more easily, and then find the resulting entries that contain that stuff, right? Because these are really, even though they're in a sub thing, logically, they're attached to the entry, and we want to be able to search and filter by stuff that's in there. Right. That's cool. I'm, I, have to, I haven't to. have looked at that closely.
1: I just saw that you posted it.
0: Well, you were in your, your purple haze at the time. Oh, my gosh. So...
1: But no, I'm now thinking that I do have an issue because of how I structured videos in courses on CraftQuest is that they are a courses an entry and then there's a matrix field for the actual videos for each. And, it, yeah, it, and- in, in retrospect, it wasn't a good idea. I should have just had a whole other section, yeah. like a channel with just the single videos, but that might actually give me a little bit more insight for search and other things. I'll check that out, that's cool. Yeah, this will
0: help you in that regard. And the reason why it's implemented as a behavior is so that you can automatically use it in PHP and in Twig templates, because all it is is just adding yet another chained function to the query. So it's just yet more parameters to add to the query. And I think this way is a, a nice way to do it so you can just drop it in and start using it. And this is what I mean in terms of they allowed me to do it right. Like this is the right Way to do it, a very abstracted behavior, so that now we can search any matrix block for any values that are in there and
1: return all the entries that they appear in. So I I thought that was probably kind of cool that's implemented as a module or as, how's it, how do you get the functionality into craft?
0: Yeah, you would just implement it either. So if someone wanted to write a plugin using what I did here, like you more could. power to you, I just don't feel like writing a plugin and publishing it
1: for right. this. Oh, you put it in your, I know, so your boilerplate project has a, a site module that you have in your yes. project. That's where you dropped it in.
0: Got it. Every project that I create and this project as well has a module in it. So all you have to do is add one event listener. I think it listens for on defined behaviors or something like that. And that will add the behavior in and then everything will just work everywhere. So yeah, you just need a, a little chunk of code in your modules init method to attach the behavior and away you go.
1: Awesome. Very cool.
0: And related to that, I'm going to put some pressure on myself because we're recording this a little bit earlier. This is coming out just after Christmas. Uh, there will be another article that will be published by the time <laughs> this episode goes live on matrix facades. And this is another concept that has come out of the work that I'm doing for them. So related to this, I ended up creating a a concept called matrix facades. And what they needed is they wanted to display a bunch of information in a table in an entry. Mm -hmm. And you might say, all right, we'll use a table field, right? But they wanted to be able to query based on what is in that table, Okay. So now you can't really do that with table fields because it's stored as a JSON blob. There's no... I guess there's a way that you can use JSON columns in certain versions of MySQL and then maybe you can do it. So then you might say, well, just use Supertable because that is sort of a way to do it. And they didn't want to use Supertable for two reasons. So one, they didn't want to as- install a plugin just mm-hmm. to have this functionality. And two, part of what they wanted to do is in every row of this table, they wanted a related user to be listed there and they wanted data from that user to be displayed in the table. And there's no way to do that in a super table field. Yes, you can put the entry there, but then how do you display fields from that user in that column in the table? So that was kind of not an option either. So I was thinking about, all right, well, how do I do this? What's a good way to do this? And I said, all right, well, can we just implement this with matrix blocks? Can we just do it that way? And each one of these things is a block. And it came down from the project owner that, no, we don't want blocks, we want a table. I'm like, well, oh, gosh. if you think about it, a table is just like our blocks are just a little bit spaced out tables, you know, they're yeah. just a little bit more.
1: And table like, in terms of like the, the authoring interface, is that what yeah. they mean? OK. And they're like, no, that's not what we want. <laughs> We want it to be a
0: table. And so I'm thinking about it. I'm like, well, I guess I could write a custom field type. And then I could store everything that needs to be stored in records. And I could build the queries that need to be built in order to be able to search these things. And then I had a little light bulb moment. Ryan. And I said to myself, why don't we just use a matrix block? But similar to how in I've published articles on how you can change how a dropdown field looks or works. Mm -hmm. Why don't we use the matrix as the backing of it, but just write our own front end in terms of how it displays the interface to it?
1: Of course you would. Yeah.
0: And this sounds crazy, but it actually ends up being really easy because every field has a method that returns the input HTML. Oh. So all I have to do is write a class that extends a matrix block and returns different HTML in terms of how I want the input to be displayed and bada bing, bada boom, we're done.
1: That's, that's all I how have much, to do. How much down a rabbit hole do you have to go with styling and interaction or do you get that all inherited? Well, we, we're not rendering any of the input HTML from the matrix
0: blocks at all. Nothing. Zero. Okay. So we're doing it all ourselves. So it's whatever we decide to output. Got it. And I guess a way to think of it would be if you've used something like Notion, Mm -hmm. where you can have different views of your data. You Mm -hmm. can view it as a card, as a table, as all sorts of different things. Yeah. This is the similar concept. So when you're, we're using a matrix block as our backing store, so we're compatible, so everything just works. But we're controlling what is displayed for the input. And the fun thing is we can also have a kill switch. So there's an environment variable that if it's set it will switch back to regular rendering them as regular old matrix fields and in the particular client's case we added a setting in their the user preferences where they can turn on or off whether they uh, see these as a table. And the reason is, in case something goes wrong or, you know, there's some kind of an issue, all it is is a matrix field in the end of the day, right? And all we're doing is changing the look of it. So an article on that is going to be coming out. uh, Uh, Before the end of the year? Well, an article will be coming out by the time you are hearing this. If it's not, feel free to email ryan (laughs) at
2: (laughs) (laughs)
1: majingo.com. No. (laughs) No? I'm not your uh, editor. But anyway, I thought this Matrix facade thing was really curious. I think curious. that's super cool because you are solving yeah. the problem of keeping everything first party, which has always yeah. been my hesitation with things like Supertable. I mean, Matrix already makes me nervous. So, <laughs> but keeping it first party, but just giving them the, the interface they desire. That's... And That's the really cool thing is right way to go. we are empowering
0: people that are front end developers here because mm-hmm. you in the matrix, I'm also extending the field so that it adds an additional template picker field that you pick the template that it's going to render for the input HTML. So all you need to know to use this matrix facade is you need to know Twig and a, a little bit about the way stuff is stored and you can make your own kind of like front end entry form for matrix blocks. And so you can Ah. make them look like anything you want to. So front end, all the PHP land work is done. All you have to do is create a new instance of the matrix facade, design your template, however you want it to be for what renders when they see this matrix thing, and then point the matrix facade field at it and and you're done. That's cool. Nice.
1: Well, I look forward to reading the article. I haven't read it yet because I've been busy.
0: You haven't read it yet because it's, oh, I see. In the future, (laughs) you're predicting that you haven't read it. We have to
1: pretend that we're future Ryan and future Andrew. This is,
0: right, this is just premeditated laziness, I think, is what this is. <laughs> this, is this is worse than, you know, If it, they, manslaughter is when you kill someone by accident. This is uh-huh. premeditated. You're going to be lazy, and you're determining ahead of time that you're not going to do it. All
1: right. Yeah. Well, speaking of reading, Andrew, you, in over the summer, or it was in September, I can't remember when it was, you went on vacation, and you had this whole idea of having a book to read. Did we talk about that on Dev Mode, too? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you didn't finish the book. I think you maybe read, read like, 12 pages. and. It- Eighteen. Eighteen. Okay. But anyway, I was thinking, and it dawned on me actually last night, I was reading this book. It's called The Hemingway Stories. Did you watch the Hemingway documentary that came out earlier this year on PBS by Ken Burns and Lynn Novick? I did not. It's actually really good. It's multi-part, talks all about Hemingway his, his whole life. There's an, a, like a companion book that they put out of Hemingway's short stories. They're really, really good. And I think they would appeal to your sensibilities. I, I think actually would you would really like them. But what I thought was would be good for you is this struggle I have to get you back into reading is that some of the stories are three, four pages long, some are ten pages. But you could sit down, say you're taking a break from looking at screens, you could sit on your love sack, little things you have in your office there, and read one short story and still be reading, but not be committed to an 800-page tome or something like that, right? Just So i would not going to recommend The Hemingway Stories by Ernest Hemingway. In fact, I'm going to send it to you, and I would like you to read it. Don't order it. All right. I'm not going to order it. I'm going to send it. Don't read it while—don't be like Hemingway and read it while you're drinking the other thing I sent you. Oh, no, that's exactly when—so Well, so
0: here's the thing. I'm not really that intimidated by the length, necessarily, of a book. It's more just— You know, I just don't really, for whatever reason, I... I it just—it seems like very plotting to me, very slow, and I—I I don't know. I'm so overstimulated with the internet and computers yeah. and phones. I, I don't know if I can—if uh, I can do that. I would probably well, have to be on a boat somewhere. But I, well, I've read—I've read Ulysses. Like I'm not intimidated by. You know what, uh, I'm you not know, saying creasing. you're. I'm,
1: I don't actually don't throw baseless Is accusations at you. Is it a picture you, book, like you Ryan? Was that? Is it a picture book? <laughs> no. Does it have big? Does it have big text? <laughs> no, but you can read it on a Kindle and increase. If your vision's going at your age, oh, but um, wow, but I'm gonna send it to you. It's all right, it's really good. They're short stories and they're almost vignettes where you're just getting a glimpse into you know that Hemingway changed how modern writing was done, right? Modern fiction writing, and it's classic Hemingway style. You're, you're kind of getting dropped into the middle of something in, in these stories, really, really good. mostly just getting drunk and womanizing. Well, I mean, he did a ton of that, absolutely. But um, I always these... wondered how he found time to write, you know what I mean? Like, I, <laughs> seriously, it's Pretty incredible. So you know, though, there is research behind the idea of taking breaks from things like screens and all of these all these like stimuli we have and then i don't remember that thomas edison there's this i'm not sure if it's true the story where he would try to sleep with two it was like two glass balls in his hand or something like that and then when he got to that point right where he fell he was about to fall asleep he would basically drop one or drop if he was only holding one drop it and that would be the moment where he would wake up and he would have those lucid thoughts those pre-sleep thoughts that would help him solve the most difficult problems he was working on. So know. there's a lot the, of like... The only, the only thing
0: I really believe about Edison is that he electrocuted an elephant. <laughs> <laughs> True story. Look it up if you don't know
1: it. I should. There might be a Hemingway story about it. So there's a lot of research behind the idea of these breaks from... I mean, you go on a lot of hikes, right? How much of your actual creative and problem-solving thinking do you do in on the trail in the woods?
0: Probably a lot. Right. And that's what I'm trying to say. The time that I have that someone might use for reading a book... Mm-hmm. When I'm tuning out the stuff that's going on, I, I do stuff where I'm not
1: looking at anything. Okay. I'm,
0: I'm reading or I'm exercising or I'm doing something like that. I'm going to you know? send
1: it to you anyway. All right. And you should uh, you should read it. Or let, um, let one of your kids read it. I don't think it's anything naughty in here. I don't know, actually. Let me finish it first before you do that. It's fine. Don't worry about
0: it. I'm sure there's nothing in there that's worse than a Marvel movie or whatever, you know? That's true. Yeah, the, the electrocution of Topsy. Topsy was the name of the elephant. I'm sending it to you, and we will link to it in the show notes. Yeah, but it of course. is a real thing about Thomas Edison that a lot of people don't know. Did Edison really electrocute Topsy the elephant?
1: Hmm. Is it true?
0: You can find it in Wikipedia, but more importantly, there's a Bob's Burgers episode that is dedicated to it. That's <laughs> I'm what actually I find looking at, at the Rutgers important.
1: University School of Arts and Sciences article about the Thomas Edison papers. We'll link yeah, that. The
0: Bob's Burgers is more dependable. <laughs> right, of course. All right. So, another thing that I wanted to talk to you about mm-hmm. is I have this site called Plugin Factory. Great site. So, I came out with Plugin Factory a long time ago, back in the days of Craft 2 when I was first learning how to set things up. And I remember being super annoyed by the fact that I had to get the capitalization just right. And if things, if the capitalization was just wrong on something, like it would just fail and you wouldn't receive an error message or anything that I could remember discerning. Mm-hmm. So, I'm like, this is stupid. This is dumb. That, and, and we actually had people that were selling. Flashback in time, we had people that were selling boilerplate plugin. Like You could actually <laughs> buy this plugin thing. And they were selling it on a website. They were selling this boiler because that's how little documentation and little knowledge existed around how to do it. People were willing to buy this thing. And that's when I decided that I should make this plugin factory thing because I wanted to make something that I didn't have to deal with any of the nonsense. Let computers do what they're good at and let me fill in the rest. So it's a scaffolding generator for generating Craft CMS plugins. When Craft 3 came around, I retrofitted on it the ability to have more than one API that it could pull from. So you can switch whether you want a Craft 2.5 plugin or a Craft 3 plugin. The way it does that under the hood is essentially each of the quote unquote APIs is in a different directory of files and it handles doing the generation for either one. And then I added modules to it. And under the hood, it uses a tool called Yeoman, which is kind of old school for generating all these templates. It is. And it was actually first written as a Yeoman generator. So it's a very, it was a CLI tool that would generate this stuff. And what a lot of people don't know, is that it actually generates a .craft plugin file that is in the root directory of your your plugin. And in that file, it has the context for everything it needs to know. So you can use the Yeoman CLI when you're in that project to do something like add a new controller, and it will add it already namespaced properly or create a console command for this plugin, and it will create it automatically for you. So there already is this nice CLI API in there for doing this stuff, but it's actually not nice. The syntax is kind of, ugly. You have to have Node and Yeoman installed for it to work. And it's based on a really outdated version of Yeoman anyway. And I'm at the point where Craft 4 is about to come out at some point soon. And I'm thinking about what I'm going to do with Plugin Factory. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you my thoughts after you tell me what you think I should do with
1: it. Well, I think you should give it to me and let me uh, redo it. Okay. No, actually, no, what was your idea? I don't, I think <laughs> that I was better bit. than my idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious.
0: Mm-hmm. If you want it, I'm telling you right on air. I will give it to you. You can have it. There have been hundreds of thousands of people that have used it for generating plugins and modules. It's
1: pretty cool. This could be a a Ryan-Andrew collaboration, but maybe what you're going to do is you are going to make it into a plugin that someone can generate a plugin from within the craft control panel. Sounds horrible. Okay. Um,
0: (laughs) What I was thinking about doing was actually making it a CLI command. Even Ah. though technically it is now, it relies on Yeoman. Yeah. And it's just kind of weird. I don't know. So I was thinking making it a CLI command and then you could make it globally available Mm. as a CLI command. And then the cool thing is depending on, so this is very similar to what Laravel does. You can, in Laravel, you can tell it to just create these various things based on the context, based on where you are in terminal at the time. So for instance, if you were in a plugin directory, you could type something like create new controller and this mythical plugin factory thing would know what namespace it's in and would create a controller for your plugin right Similarly, if you're in the root of your project, you could type create new module, create new plugin, and it would scaffold it out, maybe asking some questions first, and it would scaffold and, and do all the stuff. I think this is the kind of thing that is probably better off as a CLI command. The nice thing is that if it is a CLI command, it could still work with the plugin factory website UI, because that's the way it works right now. You go on the pluginfactory.io website, you fill in some stuff, and it actually sends that data down to the Yeoman CLI command that then runs it generally it, it zips it up and it sends it back to you. So you would still be able to do that. But if you're using it as a CLI development tool, you would get that context sensitive thing. Here's the thing, Ryan, I don't know that I want to update Plugin factory for Craft Four. Oh, <laughs> I, I don't know that I want to do it. Okay, mostly because I don't really have the time. I'm doing a whole bunch of other stuff, and I, I also I added a whole bunch of people from Pixel and Tonic and other plugin developers onto the repo. You know, had had these grand dreams of uh, collaboration and all that kind of stuff, but nothing has happened with it. So it's all really resting on me to do it, and I don't know that I want or have the time to invest the effort to do that for Craft Four. And and it's also the kind of thing where, well, this was really important back in the day, but now Pixel and Tonic has Matt doing the docs. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe this is not as necessary now as it was back then when there was zero documentation.
1: What do you think? Well, there's a big difference between the docs and a generator that creates a scaffolding for a plugin. And one of the things that you didn't mention that you do is that you pull from the... Where do you pull from to get the comments? Is it from some sort The comments that you drop in is, is from the craft source code, right? Or did you write all the comments?
0: They're either from the craft source code or they're from
1: documentation from craft right. or, you know, from all over. Yeah. So I think that if, if for some reason it didn't make it past craft three and didn't make it to craft four, it would be a huge hole in the ecosystem that helped a lot of people sort of jump into building something simple especially a module right like just give me the the basics or even a plug-in with they needed an, an action controller and they couldn't figure out how the freaking kebab case worked to get it you know to get it yeah. or, or what the path was right I mean simple stuff like that well so I wh- sort of what feel would be that... the, so what's your point pl- is your plan then just to decommission it
0: yeah I think that's probably what I would end up doing is I would put a deprecation notice up on it and I would keep it up and running uh-huh. for people that did need a craft three plug-in or module for a decent amount of time I sort feel like this is something that probably Pixel and Tonic should be doing if they want to do it or not doing if they don't want to do it or covering via documentation or you know whatever and it's really mostly just that it's a decent amount of time and work to, to update this because it's not just I did write this in an, in an extensible way so I could add just a craft 4 API mm-hmm. the problem is the baseline stuff that it runs on the yeoman version that it runs on is severely outdated yeah and I did a, a a while ago, I did try updating stuff to the latest version of everything, and it was not a simple upgrade process. And, um, you know, I guess I just have other things that I'm working on that I'm a little bit busy doing, and they pay
1: me and this doesn't. Yeah. I hate to reduce it to that, but that's kind of what it is. Yeah. Well, maybe we have a while till Craft 4 is out. It's not going to be in beta until the first quarter of yep. 2022. I don't think it would be final until probably mid 2022, I would think. So I have some time to come up with some plans and to get this conversation out there because maybe someone else has interest or an idea. Yeah, I did speak with Ben Croker on this idea a
0: little bit. And I was interested in doing it as a CLI command, maybe if we did it in Rust, Mm -hmm. mostly just because I want to make it fun for me. If it's something that... (laughs) If it's something something. that I'm doing for for no pay and it's just a quote-unquote passion project or whatever, I want to make it something that is interesting to me and- getting better at rust as a part of doing that would probably motivate me to do that so ben and i are going to have a chat on it we've collaborated on some other projects in the past and maybe
1: yeah. we'll end up doing something on it i don't know okay that kind of makes me sad well
0: like i said if you're if you're serious maybe it makes sense for for you to take it over for it to be a to for it to become a craft quest property or or
1: something like that you know? Yeah. Well maybe you and I can talk about what the as the kids say in the corporate world what the lift is to get I just I just use that. I now need to put on like a Patagonia sweater vest. <laughs> what uh like what it would take to to work on that that's the that's part of uh, the developer life though is sometimes you have to make hard choices about the projects,
0: yeah, and I think it makes sense to not sort of half ass things like this. Yeah, I would absolutely. rather
1: either be
0: de- let people know and deprecate it and be done with it or actually commit to a, a plan of modernizing it and you know <laughs> making plugin factory great again. <laughs> I can't believe I just said that. Anyway, you know what I mean? Like, I think waffling in between is the worst thing that could happen. Yeah,
1: you You have to make a decision. It's like me and this office I've been meaning to build in my backyard. Well, I have the building, but renovate. And I've been meaning to do it for two years. Every time I get close to the end of my office lease, I have an office like a mile and a half from my house. I realize that I've now waited too long because I've been indecisive the entire year about starting the project. And then I have to, I basically just, it's just basically another year. So yeah, you just have to make a decision and go one way or the other. It just, maybe it's just craft three until everyone has time to work on it to make it craft four compatible.
0: Yeah, and one of the things that Brandon mentioned in, uh, we there's a, a- informal craft chat that is done on Twitter spaces hosted by Andrea and Ben Croker. And he was on there yesterday. And one of the things he was saying was that they had been in touch with the guy who made Rector. So Rector is a project that we we actually talked about on the devmode.fm podcast a while ago. Maybe that's where they heard about it, or maybe I'm giving myself too much credit. I don't know. <laughs> but it essentially is kind of like Babel for PHP. It'll compile to any version of PHP. So you could write something in an old PHP 5.5 and then it will modernize it to PHP 8 with full typing oh, or it will go back the other way. So Brandon, and I, he said this publicly so I can repeat it. He said that there planning on coming out with a tool from the guy who did rector that allows you to run it on your plugin and it will update it for to craft four with all of the type hintings and stuff now it's probably not going to update if there are api changes but it's going to update in terms of the syntax changing like typing and all that kind of stuff so if they're doing that already you know what i mean that that makes me even want to do continue on with this less but that doesn't solve the problem of someone starting out with a new something
1: that only solves if you're Already have something, let's right. help you get it there. And I think there's going to be a lot of people doing, like, if you're in a healthy, growing ecosystem, there's going to be a lot of new people. You know, they did just come out with the event tool in the documentation.
0: Yeah. That's a docs thing,
1: yep. And I mean, that's that's pretty small compared to what, what you've done, but at least that's... I'm gonna I also that's...
0: sort of feel that this is something that should be probably the domain of Pixel and Tonic and probably not the domain of a third party person. I, I think it was okay back when the company and the ecosystem was smaller because mm-hmm. it's just like, well, you know, there, there's only so much that they can do and, you know, it's fine. But I think now they, they've grown, they've got people dedicated to docs. I think that this is something that it makes sense for them to either take it over or to just say, we don't care about it. We're going to do our own thing. Mm -hmm. I don't think it makes sense for me to continue to try to, you know, with yearly releases and all that kind of stuff, I don't see how it makes any sense for any third-party person to necessarily be maintaining this. You know what I mean? I feel like it really should be first party.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Unless you had some business model around it where it it made sense, but...
0: Well, I think it's going to make sense because they know the changes that they're making. They have to do all this. They have to do everything for the documentation anyway, in terms of what is being changed. I really think that this is something that... That should be theirs in one way or another, whether it ends up being that they have something on a website that generates it, whether they make it a tool that is part of the craft CLI or they make it their own separate independent tool. I, I would rather have this than a local dev system, to be honest with you. I would rather have a context-sensitive CLI tool that generates the scaffolding. I would much rather have that than yet another local dev system.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I still think, um, and you're talking about Nitro. Yeah. I think that, I still think that I think something like the, what I think is the idea behind something like Nitro, the idea behind them taking o- over something like plug-in Factory, the idea of obviously having good docs, is that you want to give your customers and your users all the tools they need to become rabid fans and users of your tool that they pay for. And that's kind of, it makes it as easy as possible. And that all kind of falls into that. It's interesting because, is, you know, Pixel and Tiny doesn't have unlimited people and time either. So I know right. they probably have to pick and choose what they want to work on as well.
0: I agree. And and I'm saying that in terms of my prioritizing, I would rather have something like this and leverage something like DDEV or any number of other local dev environments. Now, mm-hmm. it's a little bit fallacious because the same people that are working on one might not be working right. on the other but what about um, if
1: you got if, if you were compensated somehow to to bring that up to speed if it was sponsored or I, I, I don't know okay. I don't know I don't know I mean maybe potentially it sounds like you're not really into it so much either
0: i really do feel that it should be a first party thing and i'm actually a little surprised that they didn't try to get more involved at at any point Mm -hmm. in the process of this thing but i do understand that they have sort of a not invented here thing that they don't really want to accumulate more tech debt from somebody else which i understand it it actually can be a pretty terrible thing to acquire tech debt from other people and and the person who wrote it is no longer their own
1: can be pretty monstrous too but
0: yeah So I really do feel that it should be a first-party thing. The other thing is I really do think that it should be redone quote-unquote right. I would love to have the context-sensitive stuff in there. I would love to have it be a little more flexible as a CLI tool. I would love to not be using EJS for the templating language. It's just really difficult to read and parse. I don't think it would be too bad to take it from where it is now and update it to use the latest Yeoman, so at least it's modern. Mm -hmm. And at least we could keep all of the existing templates. That were there. It would be a decent amount of work if I was paid to do it. I I probably would do it, but I don't. I don't know. I mean, it depends on what's involved and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I think it's going to make sense for me, assuming that that does not happen or I am not interested in doing that. Maybe someone else wants to take it over. Maybe I can just deprecate it and say, well, you know, thanks for all the fish. You were great while well, you lasted.
1: One of those things will happen. Yep. And if you do deprecate it, then maybe there's a way of just generating static boilerplates for people to say this is a...
0: Well, the the code for the generator is open source and it's sitting right. up there on GitHub. Like, you know, anybody that wants to do Anything with it can do something with it at any point in time that they want to,
1: yeah. All right, Ryan, Andrew,
0: quite the way the end of the year, yeah. Well, you know, like uh, Marie Kondo says, if it's not sparking joy, throw it out. And, Absolutely. And the idea of, I really do think that Pixel and Tonic is doing a better and better job with their documentation.
1: That's killing I'm not it saying, the
0: documentation. I'm, I'm not saying it makes what I'm doing obsolete with Plugin Factory, but it makes it less important anyway. And I also feel that this is an area that probably they should be stepping up and doing something with anyway. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. We'll see what happens. Maybe I'll have a change of heart. Maybe much like the Grinch, my heart will grow three sizes too big <laughs> and I will decide, you know, I should update this thing because it's been so useful to so many people. But who yeah. knows?
1: This is the time of year, Andrew, where we reflect on what we want to do in the next year and make decisions and set our priorities. So it sounds like it's just part of that. Yeah. And, and that could be what I decide to do, is
0: my my priority is working on other stuff. So I will say if anyone wants it, take it. And if nobody wants it, I'll leave it running for a while and then we'll shut it down. But that about wraps it up for another episode of the DevMode.fm podcast. If you enjoy the show, make sure to subscribe, tell a friend, drop us a review. The five-star reviews on iTunes especially are fantastically helpful. So if you have a couple minutes, do it. We really appreciate it. For the DevMode.fm podcast. I'm Andrew Welch. And I'm Ryan Ireland. Ryan, it looks like you were really rocking out to that. So did I? Did I shock you and surprise you with that plugin factory thing? I didn't. Yeah, th- gosh, I'm oh. kind of really bummed
1: out. Really? How come? I, I just see it as like a like uh, critical to like the, the 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 growth of like plugin development in craft. I feel like so many people rely on that. Um, I think it
0: definitely was. Like, I actually agree that it really was critical. And I think, especially around the Craft Two time, when mm-hmm. there was pretty much zero documentation, and then also when Craft Three came out, and people were looking at transitioning from Craft Two to Craft Three, in both of those cases, I, I think it actually really was quite important. And I'm not just patting myself on the back. I still use it when
1: I'm generating a new module or I, a new plugin. I do too. You know? But I don't know, man. I think I think that the documentation is really good, and Matt has done an amazing job. I it sometimes even makes me a little bit nervous. <laughs> but but I still think for a lot of people there's a there's there's a bridge between static documentation and something that gives you something that you can click install on that works. Yeah. And no, I get it. I'm not saying that the value
0: proposition is gone. Right. I still think that the value proposition is there. Yeah. I don't think it's as important as it has been in the past, be, just because some of these other resources are getting better, including, you know, CraftQuest is getting some nice plug-in tutorials on there. Plug, plug, yeah. plug. But I, I do think that it is still has value. The thing is, the amount of work that it's going to take for me to then update it, I don't know if I want... I don't know. It almost it almost
1: sounds like you're thinking about it as a complete rewrite, right? Because you would just want to get it off that yeoman well, thing. That's the thing. So there are two ways I could do it.
0: One is I could leave everything at the super old ancient version and, and do one of those don't touch the server, you know, things. And that would be fine. Like I could get that to work. I actually wrote it in a way that it can handle multiple APIs. Right. So all that you would have to redo were the templates, and that wouldn't be so bad. Having to rewrite it to work with the latest Yeoman probably would be kind of annoying, but that would the route that I would want to go to at least get it up and running. You know what I mean? And then ultimately, I would love to make it just a, a nicer CLI tool. But yeah, I mean, I mean maybe... Maybe I'm uh, being frozen into inaction due to ambition. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. God, welcome to like every day of my life. But let me stop this recording. Yeah. All right.